Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as, you know, the other thing. And we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss Isirian's Inchiridion of the West Marches. We have been on Chapter 3 for multiple episodes now. So we're just going to pick up where we left off in the last episode. Right midway through the dungeon section. So yeah, the danger level section is really good. I I agree with everything this has to say, and I'm going to be giving this a lot of thought as I make plans for a, a mega dungeon in my own campaign. Um, the on return section is really really clutch. Mm-hmm. It is it is one of the big like game changers. A dungeon doesn't stay cleared. Right. That's why I and, asked you if you restocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dungeon. No, I, I knew right where you were going with that. And um, I think I know players who feel like, hey, we had to leave. If we have to fight, if, if we have to retake the same territory in our second visit, then that's a problem to me, Right. I feel like I've wasted something and like I'm sympathetic to that on a lot of levels. Right. Right. Uh, Because Hey, a session only runs so long and combats take time. You know, Uh, let's say we've got a four hour session. That's a, that's a good solid session length. Mm -hmm. Well, if we have to spend, you know, half an hour re-clearing the first room and half an hour re-clearing the second room so we can finally get to new territory. That's a lot of used up time. Right. And it feels, it feels wasted. Right? It, if it does kind of feel wasted. Not, yeah. If it's not. Maybe all the more, if you don't get XP based on monster stabbing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, so that that might be a kind of frustrating thing. On the other hand, and this is what I'd really hope I could get across, uh, once you fought in a in a room before, fighting there again, even against different monsters, you're now fighting in a space you have context with. Right. Right. Um, right. And you can plan better. Right? Maybe you can plan like as players. You can plan better. Maybe as the GM, you can plan better maybe there's a cruel damage to the architecture that persists from your previous visit right oh yeah you know we broke down this colonnade last time throwing a giant into it you know our bad Mm -hmm. still collapsed Mm -hmm. now no one (laughs) fixed it so that's that's a different thing or hey yeah we opened the secret door over there last time still open Mm-hmm. Um, which relates also to the locked door section here, right? right? Yep. Um, so uh, I guess I'm curious, Sam what mm-hmm. what do you do about players needing to reclear territory, especially if you have a campaign conceit that players always have to return home at the end of the session? So it depends, which I know it sounds like a cop-out answer, but it depends no, no, I, on... I, I like a nuanced answer. Yeah, it depends on um, what type of dungeon it is, right? So if it's a cave system and some creatures have moved into it and there's a certain type of creature sort of inhabiting the ones closer to the surface. And as you go lower or maybe further into the mountain or something, you get different types of creatures. Those might repopulate faster because they're deeper and more hidden. Whereas the ones closer to the surface, there might not be a lot of creatures that let's say it was a goblin lair. Right. And so there was a goblin, little goblin, you know, the, you know, tribe there or whatever. And it was a little a goblin boss, a goblin king, and and maybe 50 goblins, right? And they were trying to set up a new outpost or something or, or a new, uh, a new. maybe they got kicked out of the main other tribe from two mountains away or whatever, right? And the party comes in and they kill all but five of them, right? 
they've basically destroyed that tribe. And the five will probably flee. They're not going to stay there. They're going to go try to find another boss, right? Or another king or whatever. Um, Or if the king is is left alive, they might go and try to either get help from one of the other uh, factions in the, you know, deeper into the cave system, or they might just leave and try to go start restarting their tribe elsewhere or join a new tribe or something, right? Um, and in that case, then maybe the only thing that repopulates that particular cave system is like a local bear came in and found a couple of caves and came in looking for warmth one night or or for a safe place to hide or something and went in there and discovered it's a really nicely, you know, kept cave and it had some old food stuff left. So it raided that and now it lives there. Right. Probably not another, you know, that, that cobalt tribe in the week since the play party was there, they're not going to suddenly have 50 more cobalts, right. Or 50 more sure. goblins or whatever. So it kind of depends. Um, on the other hand, if it's if it's uh, like human bandits or something, they're going to have a much different in, in terms of how they're going to be thinking about if that was their bandit lair and they were smuggling something. Well, they have to they're either going to if they want to keep that location because it's a good strategic location, some old fort or something. Um, if they want to keep that, they're definitely going to refortify. So they might go hijack some other people or go recruit some that they might even recruit some humanoids or something so that they can restock that. And in that case, then when the party shows up again, it will be harder for them than it was the first time, maybe because that party of humans, those bandits, they are actually now ready for that party, right? So it really just depends. Um, if it's a mega dungeon, if it's really truly a multi-level dungeon complex um, that means there's probably more than one entrance, right? Sure. And so I might start telling the party, they, they might start getting rumors about, oh, yeah, uh, I think so-and-so was in that complex once, but they didn't go into it from there. They went from this other location, right? So you might try sure. getting in that way or you know, something like that so that they don't actually infiltrate from the same place this time, right? Um, but it really, it really, it just depends on what the situation was. Often, if it's sort of a weakling tribal monster and the party got rid of most of them, they're probably going to flee. They're not going to stay and wait for the party to come back. And they probably don't have enough power to sort of retake that area and get a bunch of uh, friends, so to speak, on their side, right? If they, if a goblin went to the hobgoblins or the orcs that live in, you know, further into that cave, those orcs are just going to subjugate them probably or, or kill them or make them, you know, menial servants. They're not going to say, oh, okay, we'll come defend your part of the cave, right? So, yeah, it, it just kind of depends. Um, very rarely will I make it so much more fortified that the party has a harder time. Okay. Uh, however, there are instances where I could do that, right? It depends. But very rarely will I do that. Usually it's only loosely being re sort of populated or re inhabited. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that's a really good like, description of the mindset of Repop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, I think the idea. It, so let me let me try this. I'm going to state the idea back to you in a certain sense, mm-hmm. and you'll tell me how I'm doing. Okay. Uh, so the area repopulates, probably with similarish encounters, so similarish, but uh, those are probably drawing resources from elsewhere and might step down the encounter difficulty either of that room or of later rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that about, so, yeah. that about right? So it also depends on your goal, right? If you want them to get through, not just freely and easily, but you don't really want them to be super challenged because you want them to be able to succeed at whatever their mission is, then yeah, you're definitely going to try to lower the difficulty maybe of, of that, of that restocked portion. Right. And so that not so low that it doesn't matter, they can walk all over it, but low enough that if they're smart and they use what they learned the first time they went through there, they might even be able to avoid some of those encounters that they wouldn't have avoided the first time. Right. So yeah, that's how, yeah. What you're saying sounds, sounds close to what I would probably do depending on the situation. Right. Sure. Sure. Of course. And I think, I think part of their point too, is to adjust what your thinking is based on trying to balance a living world with the needs of having a fun game, right? Oh, for sure. For sure, for sure. 
Because if you just stock it right back up and it's suddenly just filled with everything it was before, then the players have a point. If they go in, well, gee, it's going to take us the whole time just to get only as far as we got last time. Right. And a few bad dice rolls are going to mean that we have fewer resources to keep moving further. And we're going to have to turn around and come back anyway. And then when we come back the third time, it's just going to be restocked again. That's not really fair play. Right. Right. And, and Un- also, unless you're trying to teach them a lesson about that, right? If if there's right. something, if it's if you're trying to run something like a Groundhog Day kind of thing, where they keep <laughs> not doing something, right? And if they yeah. would, there, there's something that they keep missing about what you're telling them or showing them or what they're experiencing. And if they would just do that thing, then it would change next time, right? Right. But uh, other than that, yeah, it's it's yeah, I, I get what you're going. Well, and. Uh, this is uh, man that really touches on where I wish they had gotten into the the map level design. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we talk about uh, Janelle Jacquees all mm-hmm. the time in yep. this show, and I'm about yep. to do it again, right? Um, because it's it's got to be all about like multipathing that dungeon, right. not just multiple entrances, right? But uh, looping paths. Uh, multiple mm-hmm. ways to get from here to there. Right. So let's say let's say you do have to completely clear the the first room from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's as hard or harder of an encounter as you faced last time. Right. That's rough, buddy. Yeah. But last time uh, you went through, you left that room through the door in the north wall that was an open portcullis. Mm-hmm. Well, this time. You say, well, maybe maybe the the way through North North Portcullis isn't what we want to be doing. Let's see if we can bash down, you know, this door. Or, oh, hey, I found a secret door, right? You know, in the east wall. So now we're going to hit up a new path and maybe circumvent some stuff, mm-hmm. right? That's that that's where multipathing your dungeon becomes a real selling point because you know after that first room or or even before because of multiple entrances like the the dungeon restocks but there's still a completely fresh experience right and again since you're following the tenets of the previous portions of this book if they take that different route they're going to learn more different information and so it's going to be worthwhile, even if they have to now fight other challenges or, you know, or overcome different challenges, right? And that that sort of sucks up a few of their resources, but they still learn more. Right. Yeah. Uh, and of course, to say nothing of the XP they're scooping up oh, from sure, yeah, engaging course. these yeah. challenges. Right, right, right. Um, uh, so locked doors. Uh, we didn't we didn't really specifically say what this is, but basically the idea is occasionally you might want to um, create a barrier that the party is not capable of surpassing yep. unless they find something in a different place. It might be just in a different part of this dungeon, or it might be in a completely different region in your West Marches, or it might be in a completely different dungeon or on a diff- just a different level or whatever. But they will discover this barrier, whether it's actually a locked door or whether it's uh, some sort of other type of, you know, some kind of magical force field or something, right? Who knows what it is? Um, and they will, through investigation, discover that they cannot pass it without certain some certain item or a spell or a password or something. Right. And basically they're, what they're saying is that can be really fun and interesting, but don't do it every time. Right. Don't do it every level. Don't do it every time the party thinks they're about to find something really awesome. Right. You want to make it a more, rare item that's almost unique because that's what's going to keep them wanting to come back and you know if they find a big door with a skull on it and it has a keyhole in the forehead of the skull or in the in the in the mouth of the gaping mouth of the skull and it has a very particular you could tell right that there's a very particular piece of key or piece of metal or piece of a gem or something that goes in it they have to go find that thing and that's going to keep them interested for a while. But if you do that every dungeon, they're going to lose interest. 
Uh, yeah, maybe. It, maybe. Right. Sure. It, maybe. Yes. There's a certain amount of it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have developed it as visual language, then mm-hmm. it it just becomes uh, sort of an instant understanding of, hey, when you go find the thing to do the thing. It's fine. Right, right, right. Right. Uh, w- when we go down this hole that is open, mm-hmm. where one of the main things we're looking for is the completion item for this door over here. Right, right. right? But, but what you run into is if they end up not finding the key in that dungeon, in that level, now they leave again. And now you run into the problem of, oh, man, when we go back, it's going to be restocked. Oh, oh now we for sure. Go. Right. So that's what I mean when I say it's not necessarily something you want to do every time because it keeps forcing them back, which is great a couple of times, but maybe not every single time they find the dungeon, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of my things about this, one of the things I think is challenging about this idea specifically in D&D is... Um, what do you have to do in D&D to make a door actually hold someone out? And are all of those things fair game? So what I'm getting at is uh, there's a lot you can circumvent with a spell I like to call Dimension Door. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. You know, once the party is 7th level, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not saying that I believe it's dirty pool to say, no, you can't dimension door into that space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, It's dimensionally locked or whatever. But I am saying you probably need a way to signal very hard to your players. uh, This kind of door will bite you if you do that. It will bite you on your bottom and you will Mm -hmm. not like it. Sure. Um, Sort of thing. That's one of the things I struggle with. So I think about all these Metroidvanias where going along early, you see an area of the map that you can't get to yet because you don't have the double jump or Mm -hmm. the the midair dash, or I don't know what the thing is that you need, but there's a thing you need to get through that door or reach that ledge or whatever. It's it's an absolute classic of the genre. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know what that means in D&D most of the time. Now I can start inventing it, but most of that invention is explicitly about saying no PC, this power that you have can't work to solve this problem. Because man, if all I needed to get past the thing was Misty Step, then that's not very cool, actually. Right. It's not very satisfying. Uh as as a player, like, oh, I just have to pay the Misty Step tax to get in and out of this door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fine. Or right. one of us pays and then we can open it from the other side. Mm-hmm. Even worse. Right? Right. That's, or that's or arguably, maybe worse, one of you Misty Steps gets to the other side, finds something really horrible and incomprehensible that now that person is unable also to open the door from the other side. No, you you eat somebody with that one time. They don't do that again. That's a right. learning experience. Right, right, right. Um, but I guess my point is that that's the thing is you either have to make it so onerous that they don't try that unless they're absolutely sure what's on the other side. Or, yeah, how do you telegraph that? Right. And this is this this reminds me of, you know, there's a lot of old adventures in D&D where, you know, they'll just say flat out in this dungeon, these spells don't work. Dimension door, right. pass wall, oh, transmute, yeah, famously, transmute stone to right. mud, right? Yeah, because yep. they don't want the party to do those things, right? Right. And overall, a lot of people consider that poor design, right? That you're, I, you're taking, I am familiar with that belief. Right. Yeah. Put you're, it that you're, way. <laughs> you're, you're, taking, you're taking something that a, a PC worked for and bothered to learn how to cast and is high enough level to cast – and you're basically saying this ability that you've been working towards and you finally have attained is not useful here. And with no telegraphing and no ability to know that ahead of time, that really feels like a rob, right? You've stolen something from that PC. Yep. Um, 
that is, yeah, I, uh, there are so many powers like that where, and writing your way around that so that, that you always have some kind of practically like clapback answer to mm-hmm. make sure that they regret doing it. That's no better. Right. Well, that's what I mean. That, not, that's not, why not I say over that multiple thing, incidents. Yeah. That thing where they misty step and then they basically die yeah. a horrible death or they can't open the door from the other side and they yeah. can't get back and now they can't communicate. And like, you know, yeah, that thing is a really horrible lesson. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's just like at the same time, um, I, I don't know. Maybe you want to tell your players ahead of time. Um, mm-hmm. If you learn these spells, like, tell them at the start of the campaign, if you learn these spells, There'll be substantial times that you can't use them, uh, but the thing that prevents you using them is a controllable thing, right? In the dungeon, mm-hmm. you can find the thing that unlocks teleportation in the dungeon, right. because like the whole dungeon is dimensionally anchored until you, I don't know, um, shatter the crystal that dimensionally anchors it, right? And then suddenly. You've turned on teleportation uh, or whatever, right? Uh, maybe what you need to turn off is the knock spell. Maybe that's the bane of your existence. I don't know your life. Uh, and it's just, well, there's a specific path to get to where the button that lets knock start working is. So go press that. Now mm-hmm. you can knock right. and get in all the locked doors that are a pain in your butt. Right. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think to some extent, there are players who are used to being told, you know, that spell just didn't work, right? Like, even in my in my D&D brief game, there was one point where when they went in to save Imran's mom, and they they went into the, um, the temple of the, of, the, of the bird, right? And at one point, they were fighting, they were about to fight the, the, the boss monster, basically, the evil guy. And one of the PCs, um, he took, <laughs> he, he took, um, actually took and grabbed on to Imran's mom, the, pr- the prisoner who he was rescuing, and he dimension doored out. Yep. And I said, okay, you disappear. And they were like, what? That worked? Like they, they were <laughs> completely shocked that it was so easy for him to get away with her. Right. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm generally not the type of DM that says, no, your spell just doesn't work because there was nothing in that session or in that location previously that had said anything to them about some spells not working. Sure. Right. So now they learned later that there were some weird funky effects in there, but it had nothing to do with dimension door. So that dimension door was just fine. He rescued her. He took her all the way back. Yep. You know, and they, but they were surprised. Is my point of bringing this up here? Because yeah. Because it seems it seemed too easy. It was like they cheated. <laughs> well, right. right. And I don't know. There's there's a really fine line between surprised and disappointed in that kind of mm-hmm. moment. Right. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, the rest of them were left behind to fight the 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 lich. <laughs> the 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 uh, ancient priest who was becoming a lich so um, you know <laughs> they so they you know they were uh, or who i guess who was attempting to become a lich i guess would be the right way to say it but um so they still had a, a really fun rest of the session but like yeah you're right there is a fine line between you know there's a there's a sense of man we're way off topic but there's a sense of the pcs want to win right but they don't want to win too easily, right? Because they want to have the thrill of having defeated something that was a worthwhile adversary. And if they can cast one spell and defeat that worthwhile adversary, it doesn't feel like it was worthwhile. It feels like it was too easy. It, it was like, well, was that it? It's almost anticlimactic. So there is a bit of disappointment there. That didn't actually happen in, in my game, but my players were fine with it because of what happened later. But um, that... It, it, I'm just saying it's a danger, not yeah, that it will always happen that way. It's definitely a danger. It's definitely a danger. and But it's also a danger if you, when they try to use something that is a 
creative way to use a spell. If you always knock it down and say, no, it doesn't work here because that's not how that spell works here. It works differently here. And they didn't know it because you didn't telegraph that information. That's bad too. Yep. Yep. Um, Well, it makes me think of sort of Tomb of Annihilation, which is all about, oh, you had a, you had a pat solution. No, you didn't. (laughs) Right. Um, And like, the dungeons theme very much says, no, a Sarah thought about that and spit in your eye first. Right. Right. And so like you very much are trying to uh, get inside a Sarah head and imagine what he would have thought of. Like that, that's my, my process as a player anyway, mm-hmm. right. is to, to imagine what he would have thought of what his goals for a place were. And then do it wrong. Right. Right. To just uh, always live in the wainscoting of his intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a big deal uh, now that we're on the, the fifth level of this dungeon. Mm-hmm. It is the only thing keeping us alive. <laughs> yeah. We are always a breath away from getting smushed. Yeah. Yep. The fifth one. Is that the gear one? That's the gears one, yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. It but yeah. but we saw the uh the stone juggernaut and we're like, um, this is gonna get bad in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how this trap was supposed to work. I wasn't supposed to see that little tiny crawl space. Oh. <laughs> but but all that said, I have so much respect for the level of honesty in the um, room design and the passage mm-hmm. design. Right. Such that, yep, there actually is a tiny little um, crawl space that you can spot with, you know, a, a good perception check or, or mm-hmm. a good passive perception mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that gets you around behind the stone juggernaut where you can steal the gem before all the bad stuff happens. Yeah. Sweet. There is a school of thought that uh, talks about traps uh, wherein the difficulty of the trap is not finding the trap. Sure. The difficulty is overcoming the trap. So whether that is disabling it or avoiding it or surpassing it in some way, that is where the difficulty should lie, not in just finding it or detecting it. And so the idea is the DM just lets them find it, right? There's not, you don't even have to make a perception rule. You just, you notice, and the DM, this is again, a telegraphing thing, right? The DM tells the player what they see. Oh, you see a flagstone that looks like it's raised a little bit yeah, above the others, even just a quarter inch, but it's, it's pretty obvious in this angle, the way the light angled, you saw it. And now the party can go, oh crap, I think that's a pressure plate. Now we got to figure out what it does. I'm going to look at the walls. I'm going to look at the ceiling. Do I see any slots? Do I see any holes? Do I see, you know, and then they can talk about all the things they're going to look for to see what that pressure plate's going to do, which is a very different way to play the game than what a lot of people do, which is, oh, I search for traps. Yeah. Right. Roll a 20. Well, and and, like having a character with a passive perception of 20 has been. Right such an absolute godsend mm-hmm. um, just because like, there are so many times where things almost go against us, but mm-hmm. nope. Mm-hmm. I like, there's no tension in secret door checks. Right. I just find them all. And <laughs> folks, I'm great with that. I'm totally chill yeah. about that. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And if you have a DM that makes that okay, right. That makes it fun still to find those and, it still creates an interesting choice. Gee, do we even open the secret door or, you know, whatever, like that's worthwhile. Right. Um, I feel like though, that's kind of a, that's an area where a skill use of any type is still an area where I think there's a lot of dice rolling and not as much narrative and description that occurs in a lot of different parties and a lot of different, at at a lot of different tables. And that kind of robs the situation of, the ability to add a lot of richness to this, to that particular game. Right. Yeah. Um, a really good dynamic around 
when is it the right time for the player to slow down the session and ask to search for secret doors mm-hmm. is uh, and and all of the rolling that might entail if you're right. if you have to roll the find which fortunately I don't um <laughs> that that's rough right yeah yeah th- th- that's an actual difficulty at the table to say um you know hey um I want to take an hour of game time to really carefully search this. I mean, does your DM let you take 20 if you do that? I don't know that they formally do in 5e. I don't remember the rule on that. Certainly in third ed, there was a take 20 rule for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you, if you aren't hyper-specialized mechanically, right. then maybe you still don't hit that mark because right. that's how it works. Well, and is the DM skilled enough and comfortable enough to just let you find it, right? Yeah. Or, or are they comfortable enough and skilled enough to say, well, yeah, you can find it easily if you take that amount of time, but you know, there's a chance that something might stumble upon your group, right? And so then it becomes like a wandering monster thing or a, okay, well, we need to be as quiet and careful as possible. And are you tracking time? And are you using torches? And are, you know, like all of those things that, again, that goes to resource attrition, right? Whereas, you know, not even talking about time at the table, rolling dice and everything, but just talking about what's happening to the PCs in that particular moment in time makes a difference, right? So anyway, we should probably move on. I mean, uh, so. th- this is what we mean when we say that just dungeon building has all these little nooks and crannies of conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, it's been such an integral part of the game for so, I mean, look, it's in the name, people, right? Like, yeah. it's as important as the dragons, if not more so, because a lot of people don't fight dragons. Uh, that's changed a little bit in fourth and fifth editions where uh, you can fight dragons, but um, you know, and I guess in third edition too, but you know, in previous editions, dragons were very dangerous and you didn't necessarily fight them all the time, but you knew about them and you knew they were dangerous. So they were part of the world or whatever, but dungeons, you were always going into a dungeon. Like they're just a part of the game. And so I feel like it's, it's worthwhile to talk about them. Right. Yep. So dungeon ecology. Um, so, uh, so this, this part is just talking about how, um, a dungeon is really a living, breathing place. And it's not just a sort of blank slate for the party to come in, slaughter everything and leave and nothing ever changes, but you know, it, it could be a place where there's some plant life growing, or there are creatures that live there and they don't, they're not just monsters in closets, right? They're not just sitting in a room waiting for the, for the, you know, fighter to kick down the door and everybody to storm in and kill them. Um, right. For sure. So, you know, you want to add some, you know, uh, some intensity to the dungeon in terms of what's living there. It's a living, breathing place. It's not just a static place waiting for the party to show up just much as in no place in the West marches is that right. Like right. part of their whole point with this, this kind of framework is the entirety of it is a living, breathing place and dungeons are no different. And I will say that dungeon ecology design is a thing I've often struggled with in in my dungeon building, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because working out the logistics in a remotely plausible way for all of this stuff that needs to live underground and in principle have, uh, you know, food, water, sanitation, Mm -hmm. that is a really big ask. Right. By the way, this is why so many dungeons are primarily undead, constructs and elementals right uh and that's odiogs and and uh gelatinous cubes <laughs> yeah like th- that's in a sense kind of a problem right because it really narrows what we're doing and it is solving the problem by just not having the problem right um like it, it's this dungeon is a living environment by which i mean Everything's either undead or not explicitly alive. Right, but but recognize dungeons also include old wizards' towers and for sure for natural sure. caves where goblins and other humanoids live. So there right. is. But uh, I get what you're saying. What you're saying is, well, what do they have a latrine? Like, you know, right? Do, well, where, what's well, their what's their fresh water source? Right. Right, um, and well, and relevant to like 
here's a bunch of uh, goblins. Like my situation is not like the PCs need to go to this dungeon and start stabbing goblins. I, I need those goblins to have done something really specifically bad right. for that to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that's not a story I'm especially excited to tell most right. of the time. Right. 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 Like yeah. the, the last time there was a major like goblins in a dungeon situation in my campaign, the PCs were there to save them. <laughs> right. Yeah. From the Fae. Uh, but like what I'm, what I'm getting at is just um, a lot of dungeon creation advice is going to center on uh, basically saying, here's some stuff you, sh- you should think about and stops at, here's some stuff you should think about, <laughs> not right. yeah. here are some really innovative answers we've come up right. with over the years. Right. Is what I want to mm-hmm. get at. Right. Um, like I- imagining that you have all of these humanoids, like, okay, how important is it to you to work out guard shifts mm-hmm. where like, this is the area of the dungeon where they don't just live. It's, I don't know, the vault or whatever, mm-hmm. where they have guard shifts. So yeah, no, there's no uh, food, water, sanitation support right around here. They wait till they're off shift. Right. I think. Right. Like how important is that for your players to just be willing to engage? Like, I don't know. I, I want to be met halfway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just say, yeah, I know if you pick at this too much, it's going to fall apart. Stop. I, I, right. I can't actually make it real. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, th- one of the works I wish the, there were more writing about is just, just that, like how to make that dungeon living space uh, work without I don't know, using up a lot of uh, table time on, yep, we found another latrine. Here's the room full of food. (laughs) Here's their like monthly caloric needs solved. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I I get it. And and, you know, I, I, I suppose that as a biologist, you find coming to some answers on this much easier than I do mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. uh, English major, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and, and I don't dwell on it too awfully much, right? Like um, there are lots of creatures that grow without light, right? Um, Fair. There definitely has to be a water source, right? Sure. Um and it's the intersection of all of those things, right? And what do you, do, you know, it's not that they need a latrine because, oh, we're trying to make it proper, but because those creatures are intelligent enough, enough to know, uh, you know, where you eat, right? Because sure. it will make you sick. Um, and so that's, uh, that's sort of the reason why you need the, the latrine away from uh, the food, right? But, you know, other than that, I don't think it really needs a lot more. And like you say, but that's a weird balance, right? Because what if you get a player who's like, wants to go to every single room and really, are they going to go into the latrine? Are they going to go into the pantry? Are they going to go into the kitchen? Right? Like to what extent is this place a house, right? Versus it's a cave system. You know what I mean? And there is there is, there's actually a lot of words that have been written about this sort of thing, but most of them are, uh, most of them come to the conclusion of, Hey, it's your game. You got to figure out how much detail you want. Right. Um, but I mean, that's not really a satisfying answer. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know. Uh, dungeon ecology is an interesting topic uh, only because it's one of the more purely fantastical items in the game, right? Like, yeah, I, dragons and goblins are fantastical, but but in terms of real world stuff, when we talk about that that village, we're mostly talking about villages that we could imagine in the real world, 
right? And when we sure. talk about that castle, we're talking about castles that we can imagine in the real world. Now, despite the fact that the one in, in D&D might be slightly different, we still have a real world representation of it. We talk about crossbows. There's a real world representation of crossbows. There's a real world representation of giant sailing galleons. There's a real world, you know, dungeons. There are not a lot of real world representations of them other than the actual dungeon, like the prison below a castle. That's not what I'm talking about true actual dungeons and very large cave systems there are a lot of cave systems but not that a lot of people have been to right so and there aren't cave systems that are full of creatures like like dnd creatures right oh uh, yeah so we don't have a real world corollary to use in our brains to think about this. We can think about the ecology of a castle all day long. It makes sense to us. We can think about the ecology of a village that lives next to a forest and next to a stream on the other side all day long. We can think about how to cut down wood and still keep a good forest. And we could do all that stuff all day long because we have real world representations of it. We don't have a real world representation of a humongous cave system filled with goblins right? Or kobolds or a mountain where a dragon has carved out an enormous layer. Like we just don't have that real world representation. So it's harder to realize the ecology of that thing. If you're a park ranger at Cloudland Canyon or whatever, and you're holding out on goblins, I would be so mad. <laughs> I would be, right. I would be well, that's real mad. There are caverns, right? There's Carlsbad caverns. There's yeah. like the, there's a set of caverns in Kentucky. There's, there's all kinds of caverns, but there's those, a strategic cheese reserve caves. Yeah. I mean, but those caverns aren't the types of caverns that we're talking about in D and D, right? Like they're just not, they're, they're not. not because the caverns in D&D are filled with creatures that are monsters that we want to go in and defeat. And sometimes there is an old ancient evil from the far realms down in the bottom of it. You know, like that's not in the real world though. So we have a hard time conceiving of that and figuring out how to run that ecology. You know, um, it's sort of like, um, this is a dumb example and I hate to bring it up because JK Rowling, but it's like the the answer to how come the kids at Hogwarts never go to the restroom. Oh right. my god! In, in fairness, that is not a you know reasonable question to I, I know, ask an but, author. Well, but, but let's uh, beside the fact that they have they have there are restrooms because remember what the crying ghost. Yes, girl was no, I remember keenly. Right. But like, the but, answer, but also her answer is bad. The answer is they magic it away. Right answer they like use a wand and make their poop go away like what it doesn't make any sense right like so it's that sort of thing though right where there's no real world representation of magic for us so it's easy to come up with really bad answers <laughs> sure. you know what i mean uh sure. and for dungeon ecology it's the same thing there really is no real world corollary for us to really look at. And so the best I can do is tell you, there are lots of things that can live with no sunlight. There are lots of different types of little teeny one-celled creatures that can live in very hot environments or in very salty environments. They're actually called extremophiles. Right. And they're a certain, they're in a certain domain. They're not even, they're not animals. They're not bacteria. They're a separate type of creature. And they live, for example, in, in the hot springs in, right. in, in you know, Yellowstone. And they give off these different colors because of the chemical, di you know, the chemical uh, uh, reactions that are happening as they digest their nutrients and they stay alive, right? But they're living in boiling hot springs. And there are, you know, creatures that can live down on the bottom of the ocean floor so deep that if they were to go up the change in pressure would make them explode because part of what keeps their body intact is the pressure that is surrounding them all the time because they're so deep in the ocean. I mean, there are a lot of creatures that live in really extreme environments and there are a lot of creatures that live in caves, but are there enough to sustain an entire tribe of kobolds along with their dragon master? I don't have the answer to that. Sure. And, you know, this is 
way more depth than we really owed this section. <laughs> but um, I, I really am just trying to express that um, good dungeon ecology is a real challenge. And yeah. I really respect anyone who can, you know, tell some good dungeon ecology, like world building in their dungeon without kind of falling back on, you know, because magic, that's why, mm-hmm. or giving them a damn replicator on level nine. Right. 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 Yeah. And I mean, you know, th- there is something to be said for uh, bioluminescence and, and, you know, uh, phosphorescent fungi and, and lichen and, and growing fungus underground is not unheard of. That That is a thing that happens, you know, sure. Uh, hydroponics sure. if you have access to water and you can uh, you, you have, uh, you know, things that will live without light that they can, you know, they can photosynthesize with a very tiny amount of light. Can they do it in pitch darkness? No, but if there's a tiniest amount of light, then you can do it. So, I mean, there are things, there are ways to do it. The problem is most of those things are beyond the scope of what we even want in our dungeon for most tables. Right. 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 And, and no, go ahead. And like, that's kind of what it, what it turns on. Right. Um, whether you have a player or two who are going to over scrutinize mm-hmm. right. or whether like me, you actually don't. But your insecurity tells you that you might. Right, right. That's not or, not better, by the way. Or or you get or you get the player that goes, that doesn't make sense, right? Right. That, that's what I'm worried I'm going to have. But yeah. like, realistically, I'm not. My right. players aren't jerks. They're wonderful people. Um, yeah. E- yeah. Even that one. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but even even this. So this section actually, it might it's slightly misnamed, right? Because it's not really about dungeon ecology. It's about creature factions that's really what it's talking about it's really talking about only what lives in the dungeon in the different parts and it's pointing out the fact that to make it seem like a living breathing part of the world if the party goes in and disrupts one of those factions the other factions are going to respond or maybe an external faction is going to respond by moving in where the players uh you know the pcs cleared out some part of it. That's really all they're addressing. They're not really addressing the whole of ecology. And to be fair, in general, when people say dungeon ecology, that really is all they mean in a a lot of cases is, well, what creatures live there. But in the, in the, in the, uh, in the whole sense, ecology is everything. It's the environment. It's how the creatures live there, how they interact, what's growing there. How are they providing energy to each other? Where are the nutrients coming from? All of that sort of stuff. Um, Mostly that's not addressed in D&D. All right. So um, persistent dungeons is uh, really essentially another D20 table with two paragraphs of intro to the idea but it's the stuff we've been talking about with restocking Mm -hmm. and a new thing happens and you know in the mega dungeon i'm working on for my campaign i absolutely plan to have new stuff happen uh since the pcs were last there since it's been a long time in game uh just months and months in game maybe close to a year um and so this is a d20 table uh, labeled while you were away uh, of just a, a new thing happens or an old thing moves forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and some you know, of these are well, really good and some of them are kind of eh, but really it's for inspiration, right? Right. And it, it mates up very well with the section on factions. Right. Also in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just not in this episode. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Uh, yeah. And uh, these are all great, though they are for sure not all right for every dungeon. Sure, uh, yeah. But that's to be expected. I just, I like tables where we had 20 different ideas and decided to tell you them. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. No, I agree. Um, and it points out that if something changes, you need to keep telegraphing to the players, right? Yep. Because they need to know that something changed before they show up. Yep, that's, that's a very good note. I definitely like that mm-hmm. um, of just, well, 
you, you've you built your foundation last time. Now you're adding a new layer uh, to the whole idea. You've got to keep doing this as if fresh. And maybe if the, I don't know, the infection has only gotten so far in the dungeon, make that extra clear. That's very important information for them. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, the dungeon complex transforming is a really, really great technique for also showing the effects of player actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, we opened that door last time. Well, now everything has changed here. Or, you know, hey, you know that egg? I bet that thing hatched. <laughs> right, right. Or, hey, yeah. we made a deal with that one faction. Right. And it made them a lot stronger because we gave them something that they needed. And now they've taken over the whole place. Whoops. Right. They've become the dominant faction now. And I'm that sure may be, be good cool for to us. us now, will they? Right. It may be good for us, but maybe they'll want a different payment this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the last, I think we should actually talk about dungeon bosses. Only because we mentioned it so much earlier, and I said I would read this this sidebar to the, sure. to the audience, and so uh, I want to I want to make sure we get that into this episode. Yeah, for sure. Hit um, it. Yeah. So the so the last section of that we're going to talk about on this episode is dungeon bosses, and basically it is talking about the main boss in the entire complex, and you know. It's going to be your final big, it's the big, bad, evil guy, right, of, of, this, of this particular dungeon. And probably you're going to find a lot of good treasure if you defeat this BBEG, right? And so it's talking about the difficulty of the boss, that it should be a fight to remember, right, that, that you, they might talk about in the future as one of the great fights. But also, it should be winnable. And so they have this sidebar that says the boss should be scaled because they say the boss should be winnable and it should be scaled to the difficulty of the dungeon. Even though it's the boss and it could probably defeat all of its own minions, it should still be defeatable by the party, which means it must be scaled to that, that challenge level, so to speak. And then their sidebar says why. So I'm going to read the sidebar because I think it's really good. And it's one of those where I said, I think my OSR friends will take exception to it. Here's what it says. As with a region's difficulty, there is a not unreasonable argument to be made that the boss of a dungeon should not necessarily be on the same scale of difficulty as the rest of its own dungeon. Bosses are nastier than their minions, so why keep them on level with the rest of the dungeon? The answer is that it feels bad for the players. Simply put, it is a terrible feeling as a player to go through a dungeon, best all of its challenges, and then be utterly crushed by the boss. Players expect that if they can best the few of the challenges of a dungeon and there are no obvious shifts, that they can best them all. This is, obviously, bowing to the player's preconceived expectations, which is not always a good thing, but here we think it is the right decision. It's quite difficult to telegraph that a boss is dramatically more powerful than everything else, given that bosses are usually more powerful than their minions, but only just. Even if you can do that, there's few feelings worse for players than to clear most of a dungeon, only to be told that, no, you can't complete it now. You have to come back later when you're a bit stronger. That When you're a bit stronger, I add it, right? You have to come back mm-hmm. later. But you found out that you're not strong enough. Have a little mercy on your players and scale the bosses appropriately. And many of my OSR friends would say that is blasphemy. That you should not, why would you have why would you make the boss so weak? Why wouldn't the boss be strong? But their reasoning is that as long as you're telegraphing the danger level in this dungeon, it's not reasonable for the boss to be that much higher. It's reasonable for the boss to be just a little bit higher, but not that much higher. And if there has been attrition of resources, the boss, who is just a little bit higher in power than its own minions, is still going to be hard for the party. 
And that's yep. how you make a challenging but winnable encounter that is still memorable and not just them walking all over the thing. If you let them get a full rest in before they defeat the big bad or before they meet the big bad and it's just the one creature, then of course the players or the PCs are going to beat it up because in fifth edition, you know, action economy is king. You're going to get five attacks on that thing or more for every one attack it gets, forget it. Right. That yeah. of course it's not going to survive and, and win and or even be a challenge. But if you set it up correctly, which is what this section talks about, how to narrate it correctly and how to set it up mechanically correctly, then it can be just a little bit more powerful, but still be a tough but winnable combat. And I think this actually, while it's written in words that make it seem like they're saying make the boss easier, that's not really what they're saying. They're just saying, be reasonable about what you're expecting your party to do. You can't expect them to go kill all the minions and then go away and sleep for two weeks and heal up and then come back. That's just not real. That's not what's going to happen. And that's not fair to expect that. Yep. Yep. I think that um, I think there's a lot of just cult of challenge mm -hmm. thinking going on there of, I don't know. Um, that thing should should be so badass that PCs could never threaten it. That's not how this works. Right. right. The rumors might say that, and the things that the party hears from commoners might say that, but the party and, knows that they're fifth-level badasses. Right? And also, like, yeah, if the, if the players mess up, if the dice go against them, if they mm -hmm. just they just totally do something boneheaded. Yeah. The boss wins. Right. But it's not because the the DM used the gift of infinite stats to infinitely mm -hmm. stat them down. Right. 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 It's not a rocks fall. Everybody dies kind of scenario. Right. If they choose to use all their healing magic and they don't have any healing magic left and they don't have any potions and they don't have anything that can heal them back up and they're really beaten up and they don't have time to take a long rest, and they still choose to go in and fight the boss, well, that's their choice. They Just, might not win that one. Yeah, the number of times I have seen uh, threads in Facebook about, hey, my PCs fought a dragon this weekend. It was great. They had a great time. And the responses all come back with, your PCs never should have been able to beat that dragon. That was not a legit win. Right. <laughs> no, go away. Yeah. Shut up. You're dumb. Yeah. That's no, they had a good time. I did it right. right. I'm pretty sure I checked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing the amount of just, uh, I'm reporting on my game. Everybody had a great time. It was fun. And then you get people that say, oh, no, that, that you did this wrong. You read this rule wrong. That spell doesn't work that way. Oh, they shouldn't have been able to do that. It's like, just say, hey, that's awesome. I'm glad you had a great game. Yeah. You know? I mean, if the person says, hey, this happened, but I was wondering, I interpreted the spell this way, what do you think? Then you can respond with, well, that's not how I usually interpret that rule or whatever. But if that's not what they're asking for, then why are you giving it? I mean, just you know? now everyone who plays Elden Ring knows, well, uh, yeah, like, sure, the two of us killed that dragon, but one of us was named Let Me Solo Her. <laughs> yeah. For anyone who doesn't play Elden Ring or follow Elden Ring news, that joke won't work. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm not very sorry. Anyway, so should we round it up here? I think we're going to round it up here. Still not having finished chapter three. Folks, the casino, the house always wins. <laughs> the house always wins. The house always it was wins. a bad bet. <laughs> um, but it was a great conversation. And we covered a lot of really fun stuff. In yeah, I think dungeon we, talked, we talked more about dungeon building and stuff not in the book than we talked about stuff in the book. But that should actually be a testament to how much this book makes you think, even in those five or six pages that we talked about. Well, I, I just really hope that you, our cherished listeners, will be inspired by this conversation and enjoy it for, for what it is. Uh, and maybe you'll create something that moves that conversation forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so next time we'll be talking treasure rooms, my favorite kind, uh, encounter design and loot. Uh, loot. 
and we might get to the next chapter at some point this decade. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That could happen. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see it happen. Yeah. What's the over under? Anyway, so where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, you can, for the time being, still find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com and my personal blog is brendastoddard.com. Uh, also, my Patreon is Brendis Stoddard. How about you, Sam? I'm DM Samuel. You can find me on Twitter currently at DM Samuel, or you can find me on my website at rpgmusings.com. Thank you, dear listener, for sticking through. If you listen to this whole thing, we greatly appreciate you. And even if you didn't, we still appreciate those people too. In conclusion, trans rights are human rights. Absolutely. 